0: all right are you ready uh, grab your Bible if you didn't get one on the way in. you're gonna need a Bible today some things we want to show you as well as an outline that I've prepared uh, bear with me on this one I know it's a big chunk but uh, hopefully you'll walk out feeling blessed filled up certainly not uh, watered down or sugarcoated I really want to give you an overview of the Bible that provides uh, some much-needed bearing for us in, uh, in a time of, of so much turbulence. And so I am absolutely honored and thrilled to invite you to join me on this amazing survey, an overview of the Bible through the weeks of the summer here. We're in part three. Um, Grab your outline. Just fill that first line in with me. If you're new, if you're joining us, welcome. Here's a bit of review. We've looked at G1 and G2. Let me bring you up to speed. The events of G1 and G2. We've broken the generational timeline of history into eight chunks. And um, just kind of like doing our best to, to break it down into manageable sizes. Uh, That being the garden, and then the fall, and then the law, and then the gospel, and then the church, which is 5G, that's where we are today. Uh, To the tribulation, which is a generation forthcoming that you don't want to be a part of, mark my words. Uh, 7G being the millennium, just like the perfect reign of Jesus Christ for a thousand years here on earth. And then all things made brand new in heaven, the number 8 is, is the number of new beginnings, 8G, can't wait for that. And uh, looking very much forward to that as the Lord would uh, provide us opportunity. And if he does, in fact, Terry will be looking at that 8G little window peek into all that awaits for us in heaven uh, right around Labor Day, and so today we're in uh, 3G, looking at the law, and uh, I know it's, it's an enormous chunk uh, for us to chew off, but again, let me just bring you up to speed. The events of G1 and 2 was creation, corruption, and it didn't take long, did it? Before all that was made perfect in creation—we saw this last weekend— was met head-on in the corruption that took place as a result of the rebellious heart of mankind, both on the part of Adam and Eve. So creation, corruption, destruction, which is Noah, Noah's flood, destroyed everything except for one family. One family got out found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And only one family will get out at the end of the age. Only one family. And that is the bride of Christ, the living church, the family of God. So you have the destruction that came during the times of Noah. That's where we left off last time. And then the dispersion that followed because sadly sin survived Noah's flood. It was a stowaway on the ark implanted inside of the heart of those eight individuals that did in fact find grace and then the dispersion that would have taken place then at the Tower of Babel. What I want you to see today where this whole overarching period known as 3G is concerned are a couple of things that I could not be more excited about. Turn with me in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 27. And we'll from there make our way to this passage that's on the outline there for you in Joshua chapter 24. But in Deuteronomy 27, one of the most incredible things happened. And, and for me personally, today is a pretty incredible day. Uh, do you know what today is? Today actually, July 11th, is the day that Alexander Hamilton was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr. That was today was also the day that the Quakers first arrived in the Boston Harbor back in 1656. Today is the day that Babe Ruth made his Major League debut as a pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, who was later traded for cash to the Yankees. Big mistake. But today also, July 11th, is the day that at the ripe old age of 10, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior up at Forest Home. And so, today's my birthday. And um, I don't think we're having cake in the courtyard. But I heard 7-Eleven is celebrating my spiritual birthday. You might swing by for a free Slurpee. I love this. Look at this. And I'm going to show you some video overview of what I'm going to now read to you from Deuteronomy 27 on this most incredible, glorious day. Let's make it a good one, church. Yeah, amen? Amen. Verse 1, and Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people saying, keep the commandments which I command you today. 3G is all about commandments. 3G is all about the law. Here's how it starts. And it will be on the day that you cross over. And so it's forward-thinking Moses doesn't cross over he hits the rock with the stick and disobedience and is not allowed to cross over and so prophetically he's speaking to them that when they do when you do cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord your God is giving you you shall set up for yourself large stones and whitewash them with lime "...write on them all the words of this law which you have crossed over, and you will enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of our fathers has promised you. Therefore, it will be that when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal," underline that in your Bible, just take note of that, Mount Ebal, it actually exists, we know exactly where it is, "...there on that mountain you will set up these stones which I command you today, and you will whitewash them with lime." There you will build an altar to the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 27. How fascinating it would be if that altar was discovered. Spoiler alert. There you will build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones, and you will not use an iron tool on them. They will not be hewn stones. They will be unhewn in their natural state. Stones to which this altar will be constructed and you will build it with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God and you shall offer peace offerings and you will eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God and you will write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law and then Moses key verse circle this verse star this verse underline this verse verse 9 Moses and the priests and the Levites spoke to all of Israel and said take heed and listen line in the sand huge day O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. And therefore you will obey the voice of the Lord your God. And you will observe his commandments and his statutes which I command you. And the chapter goes on as he divides the tribes up. Futuristically speaking, prophetically speaking, Moses just has this picture in his eye, almost like of this stadium sort of scene on Mount Ebal and Mount Herazim, and he has split them six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other mountain, and they're going to yell back to each other the cursings and the blessings of God, and when it's yelled out, the people are going to respond amen, they say on this mountain, and amen, they say on that mountain. It would just sort of like be a sporting event, the first one maybe in history where they would sort of divide up the crowd, and one side yells to the other side, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got spirit. How about you? And they start yelling out these blessings and cursings from either side of the mountain with this altar in the middle, and the Levites Shouting out the blessings, shouting out the cursings that now in this 3G period of life must be adhered to and observed by the people of God who have now on this day become His people, and they begin to shout out. Look at look at like I don't know like verse I don't know sort of like verse uh, 15. Cursed is the one who makes a carved image or a molded image, an abomination to the Lord. And the people will answer and say. Amen! They sort of yell it across the valley from one mountain to the other mountain. And 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 and, and it goes on, verse 17. And cursed is the one who moves his neighbor's fence. Right? And that, right? And then all the people will say, Amen, amen. especially the neighbor. The neighbor, amen, right? <laughs> amen. And 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 um, verse 23: cursed is the one who lies with his mother-in-law. <laughs> I know it's in there. And all the people said, amen, especially the mother-in-law, right? It's like, what in the world is going? And then you get down to chapter 28, and the blessings are yelled back and forth. Verse three, chapter 28. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Verse five, and blessed will be your basket, and blessed will be your kneading bowl. And they just shout, amen, and hallelujah. Okay, so we got to fast forward it to the times of Joshua because all Moses is doing right now is predicting what's going to take place. Does it actually take place? Turn to Joshua chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. When's the last time you did a little Bible study in Deuteronomy? That was fun. Joshua chapter 8, we pick it up here. Fast forward. They have now entered into the land. They've defeated Jericho. It was an awesome victory. Miraculous to see those walls fall. They are beaten back and down in this little village skirmish of Ai. And they begin to question and wonder, why is it that we lost Ai? Should have been a no-brainer after the wonderful victory of Jericho. And they begin to peel back and drill down and figure out why they lost that battle. And it was because of the sin of Achan. There was sin in the camp. And so they deal with that sin, the sin that stumbled the entire movement and people of God, just now in their early entry into the promised land. They recircle the wagons. They go after Ai again in Joshua chapter 8, and they wipe it out. You know what follows? Look at verse 30. Joshua 8, verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar To the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal. It's exactly where Moses had prophesied it would be built. Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar with whole stones. We've, We've seen this. All of this takes place. Now go up to Joshua 24, which is on your outline. Joshua chapter 24 is even further proof and evidence That what has now recently been discovered is absolutely, no coincidence, the exact spot where Moses would predict they would offer these sacrifices, these praises would be made, these blessings and cursings would be remembered. Incidentally, no coincidence, it's exactly the very spot where Abraham first enters into the land in Genesis chapter 12. Recording here at the very end of the book of Joshua, which is where we are now. It's also where the bones of Joseph would be buried. A hard place to get to. We have a tour headed to Israel that's almost completely full. I believe there's a few spots left if you're interested. And I'm hoping by the time we go, this spot will be open for us to visit. Now, small groups have been able to visit but no groups of our size have been able to go and see what is now since I've been to Israel last has been uncovered and it's this very point on your outline in Joshua chapter 24 beginning in verse 25 Joshua made a covenant with the people that day a fulfillment in fact that word made a covenant you could actually just circle that word Or however you in your studies could be reminded to take note that the word made is not the word made. They didn't make a covenant. They cut a covenant. They cut a covenant. It just can't be lip service. This is exactly the very spot where Joshua in this same chapter would have said to the people, Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be, Mission Beach? Who's it going to be, Carmel Valley? Who's it going to be, Rancho? Who's it going to be, California? Who are you going to serve? As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And all the people said, Joshua, we're with you. We'll serve him with you. And he stops them in their tracks and says, you can't. What do you mean we can't? You can't. You can't just say that. You can't just make a covenant. you got to cut a covenant. And that's exactly what he gets to now in this passage, beginning in verse 25, where he made for them a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. Joshua wrote the words of the book of the law, and he took a large stone and he set it there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord, by the altar, the altar to which Moses in Deuteronomy had prophesied would be built to which the people then across the valley would shout, Amen! We've got spirit! Behold this stone. Look what he says. This stone, this altar, this pile of rocks will be a witness to us as it has heard all of the words of the Lord which he has spoken to us. You're like, wait a minute, just a second now. Is it saying rocks have ears? Well, that should be no surprise to many of us because Jesus in response to the Pharisees that said, tell your disciples to shut up. Tell them to stop saying that. We're tired of hearing them say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Tell them to knock it off. Jesus says, if they knock it off, what happens? Church, the rocks will cry out. So we already know the rocks have mouths. And what a rock concert that will be, right? But they also have ears. Ears that these rocks have heard all the words that you have said. "...which he spoke to us, and it shall be in a witness to you, lest you deny your God." And so Joshua let all the people each depart to his own inheritance. In 2018, there was a non-believing archaeologist and his team that did surveys on Mount Ebal and discovered a pile of stones that looked exactly like this. A rock formation between Ebal and Herazim where the nations were divided into two and would shout across the valley, amen. As they came, this unbelieving archaeologist out to disprove the Bible stumbles upon a pile of rocks that is an altar. And as they dug into the, the inside contents of this altar, you know what they discovered? massive amounts of ash and then bones that they would take to the Hebrew University to be analyzed made up not of just any animal, no camel bones, no horse bones, only clean animals of it being a Jewish altar, no steps because you couldn't Go up steps to an altar, you would have to go up a ramp lest you be defiled. And now, of all places in Israel, this newly discovered Joshua's altar is under attack and is being destroyed. Uh, by a new road that's being built through the city of Nablus to which they're borrowing some of the stones and grinding them down for gravel. And you're like, no, holy sight. And we're hoping and praying that in the midst of all of this that is going on, because there is, there is no more relevant recent discovery that would prove the very fact that the Bible that's open on your lap is, is, is genuinely accurate than to just keep digging as they are and to discover something that dates back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years to the time of Joshua when the people entered into the land. And so fill this in on your outline because 3G is the convergence of three things. 3G, this period of history, is the convergence of the people, It's the convergence of the people, the people that God promised that he would bring about and bless through Abraham. It is a convergence of the people and the law. The law, the law that was given to Moses, the law that was shouted from mountaintop to mountaintop, the law that was written down on the stone tablets and brought down from Mount Sinai. It is a convergence of the people, the law, and the land. And maybe no better site would point that convergence out than this newfound discovery of the altar of Joshua. It is where the people, the law, and the land converge. Now, law, on your outline, means Torah. Everyone say Torah. Torah literally means required. It's what's required. Here's what's important. On your outline, this word Torah or law that is going to span the promises of Moses, the promises of the blessings of Abraham, all the way from Sinai to Malachi. This law, this Torah, is going to describe for the people how are they there to live, the requirements placed on their lives. When you get to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word in Greek for Torah, the word in Greek for law is nomos. Nomos. Say nomos. Nomos. N O M O S. Or in Spanish, nomas. In other words, what's happening is the requirement doesn't change. The meaning of the word doesn't change. In Greek, nomos means required, as in Hebrew, Torah means required. The shift is in who is meeting the requirements. Who is meeting the requirements is the massive shift change that happens. Because God doesn't lower his bar when you get to the New Testament. If anything, the bar is raised in the Sermon on the Mount. So his requirements are not lowered. What changes is who meets the requirements. And 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 I love this. Fill this in cuz the light goes on. You can just see people's responses like, "Oh. The light goes on when the word testament which is a Latin word is replaced with covenant. And you begin to realize now that the Old Testament is the old covenant, the old system of requirement that has now been replaced with a new covenant, the requirements still in place. But by his grace and mercy not required of us because we could never do it. And I'm not even talking about the 10 that we can't even remember from Mount Sinai but the 613 laws and requirements that exist from the time of Joshua to the writing of the prophetic book of Malachi. 613 laws, are you kidding? And yet now that requirement has been met by a precious and perfect Lord and Savior who took our place and met the requirements of a holy and righteous. God, now flip over the outline for a second, because on the back side, and there's no there's no work for you to do on the back side. So just just relax. I I, I filled everything in for. It. Who loves you, baby? Who loves you? I mean, I got my doctorate in this. Doesn't mean you have to get your doctorate in it. But when I was going through studies, I felt like there were many times where I needed a chart like this, and so I've done my best to sort of lay this out for you. And I sort of thought, you know, that if it was this size. Because I know a lot of people are like, man, you are giving us so much. It is like drinking out of a fire hose. Why don't you just give out, like, I don't know, 24 by 17 outlines. We could, um, I want them to fit in your Bible. And this chart in particular that you could continue to maybe look out and reference, if you ever do, like me, find yourself getting stuck. So it's broken into three columns. The historical column. The covenantal column and the chronological column of the entire history of the Old Testament. Because here's what's true. Church, listen. Although this Bible is living, and the people said, Amen. amen. It's living, it's active, it's inspired. It is. It is the inspired Word of God. It is without error. It is authoritative. Let me tell you what it is not. It is not in chronological order. And so some people get lost, I mean truly lost, and it becomes sort of like, I don't know, just imagine yourself with a pearl necklace, and you have these favorite pearls that you're holding in your hands, pearls uh, representing verses that you love, like Jeremiah 29, 11, I'll talk about this even more next weekend, but there's a pearl of a verse that we love, along with Psalm 23. There's another pearl that we love, but if you don't have a string, it just doesn't matter right now how valuable your pearls are. The most valuable thing in your pearl necklace is the string that's holding it together, and all I'm attempting to do, trying my hardest, is provide for you a string So the pearls that you love aren't lost and end up sort of being scattered all over the place. And so there's a historical column, there's a covenantal column, and there's a chronological column. Now there's a big question mark in the chronological column because no one really knows how old this earth is. You got old earth buddies who thinks it's billions of years old, hence the question mark. You have some that happen to think it's a little bit newer and younger and harder to prove in the whole carbon-13 nonsense that's gone on in many of the labs. So who knows? Question mark. What we do know is where we picked up last weekend and seeing this whole list of a chronology that ended up giving to us a hidden gospel message buried in all who lived between Adam and Noah. Do you remember that? If you added all of those ages together to which we reviewed and were just like blessed and blown away by last weekend, it would total 1,656 years. We know Noah was 600 years old when it started raining, according to Genesis chapter seven. So if you took a ballpark figure, I don't think the earth is as old as a lot of folks that are trying to prove it to be, but I don't think it's like all that young. Yeah, I got a question mark there. I don't know. Let's just sort of stab it to the point of thinking, I don't know, maybe it's like, 3,500 years old, maybe 4,000 years old. Then you take that list of the chronology between Adam. It doesn't matter that Cain and Abel aren't mentioned. It's Adam's life connected to Seth's life, connected to all of those guys' lives that lived for a long time. You add it all together, it's 1,656 years, Noah being 600 before it began to rain. you begin to have sort of somewhat of a benchmark of about 1,500 B.C. that becomes chronologically the patriarchal period some would call it the prehistoric period. Doesn't mean it's prehistoric in all the senses of what that word might mean. It means that a lot of what happened wasn't historically written down until later. Historically, that being the book of Genesis, but covenantly, being more the book of Job, the hardened relationship. That although God would show up and speak through Abraham's life and Jacob and Isaac and ultimately Joseph, who is this deliverer of his people before they enter into bondage and slavery for 400 years in Egypt, you have this amazing story of Job that dates back to that same historical period. So don't misunderstand, if it's in the historical column doesn't mean it isn't covenantal. And if it's in the covenantal column, it doesn't mean it's historical. They're just balancing each other out. For example, when you get to the column of Exodus, you're now into the 1400s. And a lot of the encyclopedias, a lot of Wikipedia, a lot of the Jerusalem Post, a lot of the ancient discoveries of what was happening in Egypt during the reign of the pharaohs pinpoints historically a time period of around 1400 B.C., 1440, 1480. Jerusalem Post would actually say a little bit earlier, 1330s. I know this is a lot. Jerusalem Post actually connects their date to the later discoveries of the destruction of Jericho, which happened 40 years, we know, right? 40 years after they would have left the bondage period of time in Egypt. So you have this whole period of time, historically represented in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, probably also when the book of Job was written. You're like, who wrote it? Well, parts of it, I believe, were written by Job, like a biography, but then you you get to the point where it's talking about his death. He certainly didn't write that, which means probably someone else helped him with that, and maybe Moses, while he's in the wilderness writing books like Numbers and Deuteronomy, also wrote down for us the book of Job. This covenantal period, Moses shines through as the one to whom God is speaking and leading and representing through tabernacle his presence with the people. And that lasts, you know, we, we, we know through a lot of archaeological discoveries that they were um, in the wilderness around the 1400s B.C. So you've got to sort of like take that knowledge that we have. For example, we know according to Exodus chapter 12 that they were in Egypt for 430 years. And you just sort of push that back into the previous period to kind of give you an idea there and then into the following one, that being Joshua. Joshua now is in the 1300s, into the 1100s, into that period where they actually enter into the promised land. This time where his altar... There outside of Shechem, modern-day Nablus, was constructed and has now been rediscovered. And the covenantal relationship during that period would have most been seen through the love story of Ruth. Well, that doesn't mean there isn't covenant with Joshua. But Joshua tends to lean more towards history. And Ruth lends itself more towards the covenant intimacy of relationship between God and his people. And then you get to Judges. We know the Judges were in the 1200s. You had 12 Judges, from Gideon to Barak to Deborah to Samson, and they all died trying. They all died trying to get the people to come back to the altar, to come back into fellowship. And those were the dark ages of Israel, 170 to 300 years of the 1200s B.C., which then brings us in to the time of Samuel the 1000 year period in history or historically Samuel would be the guy but covenantally It is David who was given a heart after God, and the book of Psalms is written as there's this UK, a united kingdom of Israel that reigns through the thousands. We know historically that King Saul became the king of Israel in the year 1020 BC. So I hope that's helpful, just to kind of give you a map, a grid of how it all connects together, because then you enter into this next category of the kings and the chronicles, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, as books of the Old Testament, were written during the reign of Solomon. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, the covenant relationship of Solomon being the one who would build the temple. In fact, the temple would have been built and completed in the year 957 B.C. This was the golden age of Israel, only to be followed by chaos. To which is responded to in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and the major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and others that would then begin to represent God to the people who were now living in a divided kingdom. There was the northern kingdom, there was the southern kingdom, there were prophets that were lifted up by the Lord on his behalf to try and get the people to come home, to get the people to come back, and they didn't. And so the period of exile appears in the 500s. And off into slavery and bondage they go once again, to Babylon this time, under Nebuchadnezzar, like they were in Egypt under Pharaoh. Daniel, Ezekiel, Esther, all written during the exile period in Babylon. Babylon. Ezra, Nehemiah, and even Malachi, on the heels of that period of exile, begin to write. So if you find Nehemiah in your Old Testament, some would be quite surprised to find that that book appears before the book of Psalms, or Proverbs, or Ecclesiastes, or es- but chronologically is in the same time period as the book of Malachi, that's why a chart like this, at least for me, becomes very handy, very helpful. That Ezra, Nehemiah, and the minor prophets, including Malachi, would be writing to the people as they were returning from Babylon, as they were beginning to rebuild Ezra the temple, Nehemiah the city walls. And then you enter into a period known as the Apocrypha. A covenant of silence where nothing is said from heaven for 400 years, and that silence is broken by the sounds of a baby born in Bethlehem. All right, enough of a break for you. I'm doing all the work. Turn it back over onto the other side, and in that center square, let me just sum up what we have seen on the back side there of page two what you have sort of in summary is that from Adam to Abraham is the history of the human race. From Adam to Abraham, the history of the human race. From Abraham to the advent, what's the advent? That little baby now being born in Bethlehem. From from Abraham to the birth of Jesus, is the history of the Jewish race. You got that? From Advent to Ascension is Jesus redeeming the race. Stepping into time, stepping into space, the creator of the universe arrives to redeem. Hallelujah. And then from Ascension to his second coming, to his soon arrival, to his return is the church running the race and what is that race church that's the race of faith that we run as even the apostle paul would say i have run my race i have fought the fight i have kept the faith so what can be said to all this how do you sum it up well i found this verse in romans chapter nine to be very intriguing look what it says on your outline here paul speaking says what should we say then that gentiles Who did not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Why, they're the ones that jumped through all the hoops. They're the ones that built all of the altars. They're the ones that screamed across the valley back and forth to one another, amen, are you in? I'm in, we'll serve. They're the ones that went to temple. They're the ones that offered sacrifice. They're the ones that celebrated the feasts. The Gentiles, they get it all for what? For doing, why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. That sentence sums up the Old Covenant. That sentence sums up the Old Testament. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Who's they? They is Israel. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. What's the stumbling stone? Yeah, I know the pat answer. It's a Sunday morning, Sunday school. Who's the manager of the Dodgers? I don't know, but I'm at church. I'm going to say Jesus. What's the stumbling stone? They don't even know who Jesus is as they're keeping the feasts and they're going to Tabernacle and they're building their altars. The stumbling stone is the law. And the stumbling stone is the fact that they can't keep it. And the stumbling stone becomes now the one who says, I'll keep it for you. And they can't get over themselves enough to humble their hearts and accept failure. It's like the guy in Wimbledon playing against, I don't know who he's playing against the other day. He's a Canadian guy, so I can pick on him in a little bit. He's actually born in Israel of Russian descent, but he lives in Canada. So he's playing in Wimbledon for Canada. And every ball that he hits that goes out, he's like, review it review that. I want the rerun on that. And so like more cameras and more technology in the reruns at Wimbledon than any sport I've ever seen. And they rerun it. Rerun it. Was the ball out? And they just like, have you seen it? They like close up on the ball. Yeah, it's out. Dude, it was out. You know what he says? The rerun is wrong. (laughs) That's exactly what Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 9. They failed To accept their failure and admit that they needed a savior. And it's exactly why we need to study the Old Testament. Lest we become so prideful and self-righteous in thinking that although we keep hitting the ball out, we're in. We're fine. We're good. We're awesome. If you stop studying the Old Testament you stop believing in the holiness of God. We become very and very quickly smug in our own self-righteousness as if we're better than Adam, as if we're better than Eve, as if we would have been smarter in saying no to the serpent. Give me a break. We are as rotten to the core as they were. And you gotta keep the Old Testament in the balance of your study, lest you end up sugarcoating everything and thinking that you're in, when maybe you're not in because you've never actually been able to accept your own failure and admitted how holy he is and how unrighteous we are. That's why, in answer to a lot of questions I get, here they are in the outline, why why not just stick with the New Testament, Bob? In fact, a lot of churches are. It's as if the Old Testament doesn't even exist. Why why bother studying the law? Believe me, I'll hear it. I'll hear it today, I'll hear it all week. How about we just unhitch what's become a very popular statement by some very Prominent preachers in America just unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. Here's why we can't do that number one The Old Testament helps us to understand the full biblical story I want you to see this whole story. I think this absolutely is essential for us to see how it all fits together Lest you end up losing your pearls because there's no string to hold it together. It is the full biblical story secondly It helps us understand the whole of humanity. The whole of humanity. I think it was St. Augustine, wasn't it? Who said, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. It all fits and you need to see the whole of humanity. And what we see from what we're studying today, is the desperate need of a sacrifice on an altar that will cover our sins because we are rotten. And that's the third thing that helps us. It helps us to understand the heart of God's mercy. That he didn't write us off. That he actually is a God of second chances. The heart of his mercy, I mean the depth of his mercy, the profundity of his mercy, the intensity, soul, guts of the mercy of God that ultimately, church, Torah's aim, the aim of the law, the point of the matter of the Old Testament, fill this in. It wasn't to bring remedy, but reality. we need rescued we need a savior and that's where this amazing story and overview picks up next week shall we stand and shall we pray Lord what a lot that is And, and I know hard to imagine we even got half if not all of it and yet It never returns void, just continues to speak so clearly to us of your grace and of your mercy and of your compassions that never fail. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me, morning by morning, undeservedly. I just pray that we would in this moment, as a result of this flyby of a study of the Old Testament, just acknowledge maybe a couple things this morning, namely that we need you, that we would just reach out and grab hold of your nail-scarred hand that is desperate to save us. Desiring so much to set us free of our failures and sins and mistakes and regrets and wickedness. Just grab a hold of Jesus, church. Live for him with all you've got. But maybe today, for you, would be a day in history. A day that would stand out in which... An altar that somehow got buried under a clutter of busyness and stuff, and oftentimes good things, but things nonetheless that end up crowding him out and taking his place. That that altar, like the one found in Shechem, would just be uncovered, and it would be our lives placed upon that altar as a living sacrifice, surrendered over to Jesus, which is your holy and acceptable worship unto Him. Don't be conformed to this world. Be conformed by this book, by this love story, by this covenant not just in words, but in deeds. A covenant that is cut. I mean, cut to the heart. Wrists that are cut where you would be saying to the Lord, I am yours. I am all yours. I am all in. And I give you my life. And I give you my praise. And I exalt you with my heart and all that I live for from this moment and throughout all eternity. Jesus name. God's people shouted from the mountaintops. Amen.